Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through Acts 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up a false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, that is Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning again. What time is it? Is it afternoon? Good afternoon. Good morning as well. We'll just add both of those in there. Um, how are you all doing this morning? Afternoon. <laughs> all right. At my church that we attend is a little further east, and where when the pastor talks to you, it's actually okay to respond and say, "Fine, thank you. We're doing well." Any of that kind of thing. So let me try again. Good morning or afternoon to you. Very good. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Blessed. Yeah. It's good for family to be together. Um, just a few things as we get prepared to look at God's word, primarily in Acts chapter 7. Um, uh, Pastor Gabe, uh, love him to death, and um, <clears throat> I consider him a friend. If you see me cry, um, you're definitely a friend of mine. I cry all the time, so <laughs> I have a lot of friends. But uh, love him to death. He loves you all dearly, and uh, it's good to, to see. Um, my calling is not to the role of senior pastor. I love pastors, though, so in any way I can try to encourage them, that's really my heart's uh, goal in life is to, to keep pushing them on. Um, um, and so you guys should know that you're blessed to have a pastor who really cares about uh, your whole life, uh, where you spend the bulk of your time, as well as the, the other points of your life that are important. Um, and it's a good thing to have because we begin to reflect the, the heart of our pastor and what tends to happen is we start to notice people to our right and left in the same way. So uh, you should be encouraged by that. <clears throat> uh, I want to look at just uh, Acts chapter 7. Gabe, um, Pastor Gabe, I, gotta, I guess I have to say Pastor Gabe up here. Is that, I'm, I'm at the pulpit, right? So I feel like I can hear in, the old, in my church, like, say Pastor Gabe. Pastor Gabe uh, 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 asked me to come over here, and it's good that I get a chance to be with you all because I've been wanting to come here during, you know, on a Sunday to worship with you all. Um, it's an extra blessing that I'm actually having an opportunity to share God's word with you. But um, uh, told me, you know, you guys are working through a series on Acts, and that was a blessing because I, I teach a discipling course on Sunday mornings. 
and we've been in Acts for the past year or so. We're just getting to like Acts 11, um, so it's good to kind of go back and look at a few things. But um, it's long chapters, right? Luke just had extra paper, I guess, so I got more to say. Um, but he, he told me when I, I said yes, then after I said yes, he said, we'll be in chapter 6, 7, and 8. So I was like, that's a long pericope there to try to cover. So we'll, we'll try to do that well this morning. And um, I think we'll see some things in here that will be encouraging to you in God's word and um, what he shared with me and I want to share with you all. And my prayer is that you'll turn it around and immediately start thinking about those people that you need to share it with as well. Uh, both in, in thought and in word, but also in the deeds that you do day by day, okay? So we'll pray and we'll get started here, and let's listen closely to the voice of God in our hearts. God, we thank you that um, the presence of your son um, in this moment is what really makes this moment matter. Uh, we all collectively are hiding behind his cross, um, his cross for our stead, as a matter of fact. Um, we thank you for the great exchange that happened um, on, on, on our behalf. We thank you for the being justified because of him on our behalf. We thank you that we're now adopted um, because of, uh, of him, and we thank you now that we're collectively learning what it means to be family, uh, what it means to um, step closer and closer into your presence uh, forevermore. And in this moment, as we look at Stephen and what Luke uh, did very diligent work uh, to ca capture um, servants of the word as well as the written word to put together in a way that we can understand it. We pray that we will go well beyond the words that are on a page um, and that those words will begin to point at you and that we'll realize that you'll, you're, you're right here with us and that you have things to say to us, God. Thank you for this church and for all these wonderful souls that have gathered and we pray that you will uh, bind us together by the power of your spirit and that as a result of looking at Acts 7 and 6 and 9 and 10 and 11, that we'll understand what we need to do next. Uh, we ask these things, but we know that you speak, and so we wait collectively to hear what it is that you have to say to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I'm getting ready to graduate from college in the late 90s from KU, um, yeah, we got some, we, amen, the benediction, if you will, we're done, we've heard enough. I uh, needed to get my own car because my dad was tired of, of uh, sharing his. I would drive from Topeka here because I worked not far from here, off 31st and Broadway, the old BMA tower, uh, all throughout college as an engineer, and um, it was time for me to get my own. So my dad took me to a, a car salesman in town and I was, at that point, really wrestling with a more real relationship with Christ. Um, I knew I was going to graduate from engineering, and I knew I was going to seminary, but I didn't have a call to anything, or I was denying it, I guess I could say. I just know I need to go learn. But um, as the case may be, as you're growing, you begin to ask really good questions, and you don't care really where you ask them. And so somehow, I got in a conversation with a car dealer of all people, right? Can't trust car dealers, but I'm getting a conversation about God with him. And I asked him, um, well, how do you get closer to him? How do you really see him well? What, what does that look like? How do you know when you're doing that? And he said, go down the sidewalk. And I walked probably 70, 80 feet away. <clears throat> and he said, stand there. And he said, what, what, color, what, what does my tie look like? 
And I'm looking at it, and he had it kind of covered. And I said, it's ugly. It's a really ugly tie. <laughs> I said, that's rude, but okay. He said, walk a few feet closer. He's, he said, what, what does it look like? I said, it's, um, it's kind of a bluish color, and uh, it's still ugly. It's really ugly. He said, okay, you're, you're still rude, but that's all right. So come a little closer. And I got a little closer, and he said, what does it look like? I said, it's, it's not blue. It's kind of a purple, and there's another color I can't make out clearly. Um, and you've got, did you spill some food on it or something? It's, Come a little closer. So I moved a little closer. I said, no, it's not blue. It's definitely purple, and it's black, stripes that are going along it. And there's something in the middle. He said, come a little closer. And I got a little closer, and I said, no, there's diamonds in the middle, and there's some shape in the middle of that. And it's black, but that's not purple. I'm not sure what that color is. That's very intriguing. I got a little closer, and as I got closer, there was more detail. And what he showed me in that is the closer you get, the more detail you recognize about God. So often in life, though, we're in such a hurry, moving from thing to thing, from big event to big event, that we get into that rhythm. And God lets us do that for a while. And then he helps us to understand And when we're anticipating it, he's letting us know, I'm the composer. And I play jazz, not just marching band. Like, everybody likes the marching band. It's very <laughs> But when he switches it up on us, he's reminding us, I'm the composer. I'm in control of this thing. And if you want to recognize me, you need to come closer. How often is it that we miss the presence of God in these moments in life because we're in a hurry? Anybody ever been tired? Everybody's like, yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, we take a three-minute nap time. No, not now. I'm sorry. I don't want anybody to walk away and say, he put us to sleep. That'd be, like, offensive. <clears throat> we become so enthralled in this day and age with facts, facts-driven to society, facts and data. Everything's about calculations. We are judging whether we've been successful by how productive it is. And when we do that, it wears us out. It's just too much. Our brains are not capable of handling it. Our hearts are certainly not able to handle it. And we can't hold it up. It's just too much to, to try to in, in, encapsulate in our little bodies that we have. Um, we have all these data, and really what happens is we can't put it together right. Or what happens is because we all have lenses by how we look at life, we put the facts and data together based on how we see it. But then if you rotate it around, it's the same facts and data, but people put it, put it together differently. The only way we're going to see things clearly and not be over, overwhelmed, not be tired, not be completely drained, is to see God properly and to recognize when and how he's present. It's one thing to miss uh, a tie on a, a car salesman, you know, as you're buying a car. It's another thing to miss the presence of God. It's a dangerous thing to miss the presence of God. And it really begs the question... When was the last time you saw God clearly? When was the last time you pulled up to a stoplight and had to wait a little extra and God was standing there saying, because that's how I envision God. He's like, maybe not, but he's there and you missed it. When's the last time you were doing something this time tomorrow or Wednesday and saw God? When was the last time you came to the regular rhythm of corporate gathering and something made you recognize that God was present. 
It seems antithetical when you think about it, that as Christians, we're finite, we're small, we're short. All of us are short compared to God. This side got the joke, y'all. We'll catch up a little later. That we would miss God, right? We shouldn't see God. He's big and we're small. He's infinite and we're finite. He is all-powerful and we think we're strong, right? But what we find is that, you know, the psalmist and James remind us that we're dust. You wouldn't expect to see God. We're just a vapor. Our lives are very short. We get a little bit of time here to do the things we do. And as quick as it starts, it's gone. But what we find God doing over and over again in his story is pursuing us, making himself known. In the garden at the fall, when um, Adam and Eve chose to, to uh, force, uh, forsake all the other gifts that God had given them and take the one thing that wasn't a gift, we don't find him going away. We find him in the garden saying, where are you, humanity? That's what his name means, Adam. Where are you at? In stories much later, we find uh, prodigal kids, one prodigal staying in the house, just as far off as the other son, just happens to be very disciplined and looking organized, but he's just as prodigal. But for both of them, we find him doing things that are abnormal. Who runs after their kids in that, in that culture, showing their ankles? Who, who prepares a feast for their kids? Who gives their inheritance, who has inheritance this day and age, let alone give it to your kids, right? Maybe some of y'all do. I'm working on it. I got some books for you. Here are some Greek books for my son. He'd be like, thanks. Who does that? But what we find in God's glory and his transcendent majesty is readily available for us. The weightiness of God, his reputation, or what we call glory, is readily available to Christians, readily available to those in the world. It would seem that the ones then, who, who gets to see him? Who gets to see him clearly? Well, in our day and age, in the way we put lenses on and look at life, the productivity ones, the successful ones, the ones who have the best story, the ones who come from the best background, the ones who have the, their 401ks figured out, got the best jobs, got the degree in engineering from KU, right? The, no, not, not them, right? It's, it's usually based on the ones who have their foot in the door, Right? But what we find God doing is he flips everything upside down and says, no, if you want to see God, you have to admit that you're weak. It's not your strength that makes you see God. It's the ones who are weak. The good candidates are the ones who see God. Now, that can be very convicting, and that can be very difficult to embrace, but Jesus made that pretty clear, right? Blessed are the poor, for they inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is just not in the habit of saying rhetoric. He actually meant that. Congratulations to those who admit they're poor. They get the kingdom. So what we've realized then is that's, that's, that's rough for me, especially in our day and age where it's all about being strong. But what we find then is that uh, the beauty of that is that we actually get to see the glory of God. You can give up your strength and gain something much better or you can keep your strength and give that up eventually too. The choice is yours. Stephen finds himself caught by authorities, right? He's in a really weak position. During a time where escalating opposition, uh, a comparatively uh, group of, small group of people we call the followers of the way at this point, 
They don't have the strength or the power. They're not involved in uh, economic influence. They don't have the power politically. They're just a, uh, really at this point a sect of Judaism. They don't even have their own identity at this point. He's in a troublesome situation. He's weak. He doesn't have a way to get out of it. Um, and what we find in this situation is a question. How do you find God's glory then in weakness? How do you find the glory of God when you've done everything you need to do and you've done well and it doesn't play out the way that you wanted it to? How do you find the glory of God in a present culture and age where there's some things that aren't just going to be resolved because of your experience or background or your lack of experience or background? There's no quick answers to some of the things we're seeing in this day and age, right? We see all kinds of problems with us, and it would be nice to just say, well, just do this, and it'll work. Maybe in a vacuum, but in the reality of the matter, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't fix itself that way. It makes it very clear in those situations that we're weak. We have great logical or rhetorical answers, but practically speaking, it doesn't work like that in the fallen world. So we, we, we can see then wherever we may be in life, this is a valid question that we find in God's word, and therefore we need to hear what God has to say through the eyes and ears and life of Stephen. How do you find glory in incredible weakness? I think we find three characteristics of God's glory in, in, uh, in our weaknesses in this text, chapter 7 of Acts. One, if you're writing them down, is the countenance of God. Two is the clarity of his narrative. And three is contentment in Christ. One is the countenance of God. Two, the clarity of his narrative. And three, contentment in Christ. First, we talk about the, the countenance of God. We saw that Stephen is in a weak position, right? He's in a circumstance where very clearly he's not going to get out of this. There's a lot of things that are coming his way. But ironically, in Acts 6.15, headed into 7, it says these words. All who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Stephen is really in a point where accusations have been raised. He's got a lot of trouble by opposition. Um, this is not going to be a good circumstance. And it looks like it's going to be trouble. When I was a kid, um, I think I had an engineering background already. And so we had a, a um, medicine cabinet with the two mirrors that slid on it. And something inside of me, deep in the inside, said, mess, mess with those mirrors and see how they work. And so I started messing with them, but I was, I was short back then. And... Um, <laughs> And so I, I, I tried to lift it, and I lifted too much, and I found that gravity doesn't work for everything, and I pulled it out, and they both fell on the ground and spread all over the ground, glass everywhere, and I was not in a calm position <laughs> at that moment. There was no tranquility. But that's not what we find Stephen doing in a broken situation, right? We find him the opposite of me. Uh, it says that his face was like an angel. I didn't look like an angel when I broke those glass. But Stephen's face is like the face of an angel. And I think I like Daryl Bach's explanation of this because you think about it. What does an angelic face look like? What does an angelic face look like? Daryl Bach says, the appearance of one inspired and in touch with God. The appearance of one inspired and in touch with God. I'm glad 
that it's not based on a certain facial expression. I'm glad that it's not based on a certain pigmentation. I'm glad that it's not based on a certain geographical location. He says the appearance of one inspired and touched by God. In number 625, it says, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. When God's countenance shines on his people, they begin to reflect back the very thing that he shines on them. When Moses went to the top of the mountain and he came back down, his face shined because he had been in the presence of God. They had to put a veil over him. When three uh, brothers were in a, a furnace in Daniel, they shined the presence of God. There was a fourth one who showed up there with them. People shine when God is present and, and with them, and they recognize that. I think for what we find for Stephen's face, we find a face of tranquility. We find a, a, a face of, of being calm. And that really helps us to see that the glory of God is not predicated on perfect circumstances. It's not predicated on everything working out like we want it to work out. It's not our ideal result of the situation. We see the glory of God with Paul as he talks about all these travel dangers from place to place that he went. We see the glory of God in Jesus himself as he's laying on, as he's exposed on a cross, unrecognizable, the glory of God, so much so that the, the soldier said, surely this is the Son of God. He even sees God's presence and his glory can be seen in situations that bring about a peace that goes all about beyond all understanding. The countenance of God and our weakness. Second, we see the clarity of his narrative in our weakness as well. I have a grandfather, uh, when I was young, I used to ask him questions about like how to put a, a watch together, how those watches go together, because when he when I uh, uh, go visit him, he worked for an antique shop. And in his explanation of it, he would start explaining how a watch works with Franklin Roosevelt in 1942 and his dog named Fowler. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't see how the dog or the president has to do with this watch. But what he would do is eventually weave this story from the watch, I mean from the president and his dog all the way back to the watch. And it would be relevant and it would be necessary. And what we find in this story is the same kind of thing. What we see Stephen doing is helping them to understand that their answers to the questions they're asking are right there in God's word and what he's doing. Stephen is being accused. They're blaspheming him. They're saying, or they're accusing him of blaspheming the word of God. They're accusing him of uh, blaspheming Moses. You don't talk about Moses like a, you know, bad, you don't, don't say nothing bad about Moses to that era. You should bring up Moses? They get you in trouble. So they're, they're, they're accusing him of blaspheming Moses. Uh, they're, they're accusing him of speaking about the holy place. And on top of that, he's been hanging with this guy named Jesus who kept talking about tearing this temple down because they didn't see it right. But what we find Stephen doing is he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say, you guys don't know me, you don't know my background, and I'm, I'm established, and you don't know what I've been through. He doesn't talk about himself at all. He begins his story with Abraham. They're asking about questions here and now. He wraps it all the way back hundreds of years ago to Abraham. I think maybe he was stalling. He knew there was trouble coming, so he said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Chapter 27. Let me stretch this out as long as I can. No, really what he's doing is helping us to see that the same thing applies to us. The gospel, that good news that we know, wraps all of the stories of life back together. 
It deals with all the questions, all the deep questions that all of us have in our lives. And it's the lens by which we should look at life. If there is a question that you have in life, there is an answer, and it's rooted in the gospel. Because the gospel points to the one who says, I draw all things back to me. I'm winding it all back together the way it's supposed to be. The gospel is sufficient to answer the great questions that we have in life. And what we see Stephen doing is helping them to answer really the two questions that they're asking. Where is the sacred space and where are the sacred times? Where is the sacred space and where is the sacred times? And he really gives them four illustrations to make that clear when we talk about the clarity of the narrative. First, he talks about Abraham. And Abraham, we, t- we learned, was called out of Mesopotamia. God called him and said, I need you to move somewhere else. Get your U-Haul, get your family, put everything together. That's where the first U-Haul was, really. And, that <clears throat> and what he found was as he moved, he found contrary to the other uh, ancient gods, lowercase g, God moves with him. When you go to Egypt, I'll be there. In Ur, I'm there. When you go to the promised land, I'm there. When you start a new family... I'm there. When you go to work tomorrow, I'll be there. On your way to brunch, I'm there. The next stoplight you get to, I'm there. When you go to a place and you feel like nobody's there with you, I'm there. When you think you've got it all figured out, I'm still there too. He's a God who's demonstrated over and over again that he's there. With Abraham, he showed that he's there. With Joseph, when his brothers didn't like the dream that he had, and they sold him into slavery, and he got sent into slavery, God said, I'm there with you as well. I'll be present with you there as well, bringing redemption and, and favor. And Joseph saw it. He recognized it. He saw that tie right because he came to the conclusion when he saw his brothers again, not to give them uppercuts and beat them down, which is what I'd have done if my brother would have sold me into slavery. We find him saying, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. It's the same story. Moses comes along next in Stephen's explanation of the clarity of the narrative, and he says, uh, he tells us that he was beautiful to God. I think that's intriguing in the text, that Moses was beautiful to God. And Moses found that um, bushes and mountains are sacred to God as well. While he's on this journey with these Israelites who would rather go back to Egypt because they had better pizza, and no, they didn't have pizza back then, did they? My history's not very good. Steak, right? So they wanted to go back, and they're traveling with Moses, and they didn't want to be with him. He gets on the journey. Mo, uh, Moses told by God, I need you to build this ark. And in Exodus 25, he makes it very clear to him, but I love how he finishes that chapter off. He says, build it with acacia wood and make it so long and so high and so tall and so deep and overlay it with gold. And then put these rings on it and make the poles go through there and carry the covenant, the promises that I've made to you. Cover it with an atonement cover. Put cherubim on it. And then he says these words, there between those cherubim, I will be with you. Along the journey where you're carrying the promises of God, guess what? I will be with you. Sacred space, sacred time. Wherever you're traveling through, I'm with you. You're covered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. I will be with you. Interesting, his name is Emmanuel. David is the last one, but he didn't quite get the message. He wanted to not put God in a box, which is sometimes what we do today. Or maybe not y'all, not Macedonia, but every other church in America, <laughs> we like to put God in a box. This is how you work systematically. 
But what we find him doing is, I won't put him in a box, I'll just put him in a big building. See, you'll be more comfortable, you have some space. And David had to be reminded, as well as his son, heaven is God's throne. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Stephen illustrates through this narrative uh, that he can bring clarity to it, that God's narrative is clear. It may seem like we're wandering from place to place and dealing with circumstances and things seem up and down, but he leads us through these paths for his name's sake. It's one narrative, and God is really wrapping it all back together. This is a sacred space and a sacred time, but guess what? With God, any place and any time can be sacred if we recognize how he's present in it. And really what ultimately helps us to see is in God's narrative, he keeps repeating the same message about him being present and with us. That's a beautiful thing. Some things check out. Some people check out. Some people um, are there as best they can, but they can't quite be as where they want to be. But we find God saying, I'm readily present for you and involved in what you're dealing with in life. We find the countenance of God in our weaknesses through Stephen. We find the clarity of the narrative of God in our weaknesses. And lastly, we see the contentment of Christ in our weaknesses. So the opposition has has heard this story. They've heard what he's had to say. They heard it through their ears, but they didn't really put the pieces together. And their conclusion was, you have to die, Stephen. We're going to get these stones, and we're going to exploit creation to kill you, right? Verse 57, it says these words, they covered their ears and rushed him out having stones, and, they, and ultimately we find that they laid their, their cloaks, their jackets, at the feet of a person who would later say, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. His name is Paul. So here we see him coming into this story. And it really begs us to look at the question, how is it, Stephen, in such a weak moment? How is it when you've really done nothing wrong? How is it when you are really not in control <clears throat> that you have the face of an angel? Notice he hasn't checked out. He didn't say, this isn't my problem anymore. I'm gone. Notice he doesn't hope that God puts all of them to sleep like the soldiers in a few chapters earlier. Notice he didn't say, that's your ancestry. I've got a different ancestry. Therefore, I'm not responsible for what's happening now. What we find him not doing is being passive But he's active in the moment, so much so that even while they're stoning him, he says the words, don't hold this sin against them. Intimately involved, present just as much as the Lord is present. When I was a kid, um, 1985, the school that I grew, uh, the church I grew up in was celebrating the 30th anniversary in Topeka, Kansas of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. The Brown family attended the church. And this particular Sunday, there was a lot more people there than normal. Um, and I walked in and was, I found a friend of mine, and um, <clears throat> I asked him, what, what's going on? Why are there more people here? He said, I'm not sure. I think somebody's visiting, but I don't know who it is, really. I said, well, who are they? And he pointed to the front, and there was an elderly woman sitting there. And I said, well, who is she? He said, I don't know her name. I don't know. I said, uh, well, why is she here? He said, I don't know. I said, come on, you have to know something without what's going on. I said, I... I think she was uh, involved in, um, she was at work. She was at work, and they threw her out of work. And I said, well, that, that, doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound like, why would she be here? What's the big deal about it? He's like, no, I think she was on her way to work and didn't make it. I said, well, what happened? He's like, she was traveling to work and got into an altercation with some people, and uh, then it started this big upheaval somewhere down south or something. I don't know. I was like, well, where, where, where was she? 
what was she doing? Was she getting an accident? Was she it's like, no, she was just on the bus, you know, just riding on the bus. I said, she was on a bus. He said, yes. I said, well, what, what happened? He said, I, I don't know, it was an argument about something, about something, I don't know, some shoes or something or other, I don't know. I said, are you sure she wasn't asked to move? He said, yeah, that's it. She was asked to move and she didn't want to move. And then, like, there was a big issue about it, and like, it just became this big problem or whatever. I was like, was this in Alabama by chance? And he said, yeah, it was in Alabama, and they were going to put her in another seat, but she didn't want to sit there, so they put her off the bus. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I said, dude, because that's what you said in the 80s, right? <laughs> You're talking about Rosa Parks. So he had the facts. He knew roughly who she was but he couldn't put the pieces together. Couldn't see the relevance of who was right there present with him. It's a dangerous thing to have all the facts about God and think that we're so strong that we see him right. But it's the weak people who actually see God clearly. The weakness of, uh, uh, that we see is that there's glory. We see the countenance of God shining on us when we admit that we're weak. We see the clarity of his narrative. We understand it's been the same story yesterday, today, and forevermore. We believe that he is, in fact, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we also see that we can find contentment in, his Christ, in, in Christ. Notice Joseph, uh, their bro- his brothers couldn't find and understand that it was a sacred space that, that God was creating. The Israelites didn't trust Moses because they didn't recognize the sacred time that was involved. David and Solomon couldn't contain his sacredness. They wanted to box him in and realize that you can't do that with God. And now this crowd is present with Stephen, carrying the face of God like an angel, a messenger from God, and they couldn't see it as well because their weakness wasn't as weak as Stephen's weakness. But what we find him not doing in this situation is he states, uh, Luke states what he thinks, and then he repeats it again and, and, and articulates that Stephen actually told him. Could have kept it to himself, but he actually shared it even in this moment of weakness. In the end of chapter 7, it says, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. As he's getting ready to die, he makes it very clear. Look, don't look at me. I see heavens open. I see a transcendent heaven. It's not a a distant place that doesn't exist. It's not a conceptual construct, an idea that we kind of like, that sounds good to us. There is a literal heaven beyond what we know of this world, beyond this physical material world that exists and it's, it's open to us. Do you realize that when you come to Christ, when we pray, our prayers don't, y'all, y'all got a nice ceiling. <laughs> they don't bounce off the ceiling and come back down. God actually hears his children. And a prayer heard by God is a prayer heeded by God. Even if he says no, because every good and perfect gift comes from him, a no is a good answer from God as well. There's no mistakes with God. You'll never hear him say, oops, how did that happen? A transcended heaven, but we also see a triumphant Christ. He says, I see the Son of Man. He's not in the grave anymore. 
He's sitting on the right hand. It's a position of authority next to the Father. I see him. I recognize his authority. Like Isaiah in chapter 6, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw him in his rightful place. Do you see God in his rightful place day by day by day? Not only do we see that, but we see a true affirmation. It says the Son of Man standing, not seated, standing at the right hand of God. Whether it's to welcome Stephen or whether it's to affirm Stephen, what it gives us a clear picture of is when you seek to understand God, when you see that Ty is worth coming closer to, when you recognize that he pursues you, when you realize that his story is far greater than your own story, you start walking towards him and you realize it is possible that God will stand for you as well. What a beautiful thing. There's a lot of things we like to be stood for in, in life. Accolades, right? We want our family to stand for us. We want our paychecks to stand for us every Friday or 15th and 31st, whichever it comes for you, right? We want our 401Ks to stand up for us. We want people to look at us, right? And wherever your hangups are, you want people to stand up in those areas and say it's going to be okay. But there's nothing better than the Son of God who was willing to die for you and me to stand for you on the right hand of God. It means he's in authority and he's saying that's one of mine. Interceding on our behalf day by day by day. I love the words of Howard Thurman as we get ready to close. He states this, whatever may be the tensions and stress of a particular day, there is always lurking close at hand the trailing beauty of forgotten joy or unremembered peace. The trailing beauty of forgotten joy or unremembered peace. It's very easy to get in this life of getting in that system, and when he changes it up on us, we hate it. Or when we see stuff around us that the rhythm is not like the rhythm we like, we try to ignore it. But those moments remind us that we're weak. But the beauty of that is when you can accept that and embrace that, two things happen. One, you begin to see God better. And two, you don't look at people as being so different anymore. Whether their weakness is they don't have strong arms, it doesn't matter because you know what weakness looks like. The transcendence of God, the presence of his glory, the countenance of God, the clarity of his narrative, the contentment we find in Christ. When we realize just as what David said in Psalm 23, very similar to this, surely grace and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. What a great God we serve, right? What a great God we serve. Let's pray. God, you are here, and we're thankful for that. Thank you that as we draw near you, you draw near to us. Thank you that your face is better than our own. Thank you that your story is greater than our own. And thank you that your son gives us a peace beyond all understanding. Help us now in this moment as we depart from this place together to ever see your presence, and to respond accordingly to that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.